This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Today is October 17th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the brilliant Simon Belanger. Do you just bring your bike in? Is that is it all done for the season or? Uh, oh no no oh no! I'm like I'm gonna be biking until like there's snow on the ground. Until there's snow, sure. out yeah. boy. Yeah. Do you do the no. fat bike the the winter yeah. one? Yeah, I have a fat bike too. So I, I basically can bike outside like eleven, ten and a half months of the year because when it's kind of melting. It's not the best, but uh, yeah, I busted my front suspension, so I had to buy a new one. <laughs> uh, well, hey, that means you're grinding out there. I used to, uh, I used to bike to work basically twelve months a year because it was like a, eh, it was like three clicks each way, and getting on the streetcar at my stop to get to the, to work was basically impossible. Like by the time it got in downtown. There was already way too many people on. So you could either be that guy and like squeak on there, you know, you like you like put your shoulders in together and like uh, tail between your legs and try to get on there. Or you just hustle in the in the snow, uh, the heel toe express or bike. So I was that psychopath all winter. <laughs> we have <laughs> we have lots to talk about today. I felt like last week was like, yeah, not much news. Earnings season is picking back up. That acquisition that was left for dead, uh, we'll talk about in a second. IPOs, er, er, earnings, look, it's we're back, baby. So, want me to kick it off here with the the transaction? Yeah, go for it. I mean, something. What, how long has it been for uh, Activ- Activision Blizzard and Microsoft? Like two years now, or almost? I think twenty one months. Twenty months. Twenty one months. So, call it almost two years since we announced it on this podcast which is kind of crazy. Uh, So we talked about this deal, call it 20 months ago. And what a strange transaction this has been. Microsoft has finally closed their acquisition of Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. Nice. For those unfamiliar, Activision Blizzard, which really should be called Activision Blizzard King, since King is their mobile games division with like Candy Crush is the big uh, the big breadwinner there. Hit titles you've likely heard of or even played, Call of Duty, Warcraft, Diablo, Overwatch, Candy Crush, Hearthstone, Starcraft, and more. You ever you ever given any of these a, a whirl? Oh, I was uh, I still play for once in a while Diablo, but oh yeah, you're a Diablo uh, yeah. guy. Yeah, Diablo guy, but I know they've had a lot of flack from the community in the past, like seven eight years where they used to be this like awesome gaming company where they would have their products that were like you know when they was released it was a finished product very quality product and then over the years they kind of shifted to you know making more money profits and starting to release these products that were not that great still had bugs in them uh and if anyone is interesting the interested the most recent release is diablo 4 and although it did a lot of sales, um, it's having some major issues where the amount of active users has dropped like 95%. Is it just like really buggy or? Really buggy, didn't listen to the community, I think, from what I've heard in terms of what people were looking for. And they said they were like, there's, um, honestly, I think it may be a good thing for Activision Blizzard because I feel like Microsoft will inject some new blood, new perspective. And I think they might go back to the roots a little bit where they'll actually listen to their base and these people that are actually supporting them and buying their products. Cause there's so many, you know, when you're a consumer and you're being told, Oh, next time's going to be better. And you believe them and you put faith in them at some point, you know, when that's not coming true, you just kind of give up and say, okay, I'm not buying your next game. So I think from that perspective, uh, it'll be interesting what Microsoft does with them. Maybe they can be a little bit more long-term in the way that they think about like, injecting cash out of these games uh, against the community because uh, Microsoft 
makes a, a few dollars if you're if you're not familiar with uh, the billions of dollars that they print. Um, I played an egregious amount of Call of Duty in, back in the day. You know what's funny when you're talking about that? These games, I'm, I'm not a gamer these days, but I know that the games that they push, since it's all like over the cloud, they're able to push bugs and fixes. It's almost like it's okay to ship like a half-baked game because they can just kind of keep working on it to meet their, like they, they meet their release date, but then they're able to just patch stuff over the internet. Bro, remember when we used to get video games in cereal boxes? Oh yeah. Like yeah. That, <laughs> that was, you ship that game, if it doesn't work, you are screwed. Like it's on a CD on your Frosted Flakes box. Uh, you know, that is that is the OG right there. So I remember, like, I used to go to Costco with my parents when I was, like, probably 10, 11 years old, and they'd kind of go, you know, do the shopping and all that, and I'd stick in that area, the computer slash video game areas with all those boxes, and then I would always try to convince my parents to, to buy me one of the new games, which was, like, maybe, you know, 10% cheaper at Costco compared to somewhere oh, else. Good times. Man, <laughs> that is some serious uh, nostalgia, just picturing one of those cereal box games. So this acquisition has been quite the ride. It looked like it was not going to get approval, uh, regulatory hurdles, crickets, nothing, like nothing really to talk about, to, oh, it's back, it's it's on again, to crickets and, you know, just more dragging on. Again, this has been a long time, nearly two years and then all of a sudden, like two nights ago, I'm, I'm scrolling the interwebs and boom, by the way, the deal is closed. It's like, oh, I kind of for, kind of forgot about this. A big play from my view here is Microsoft being the owner of Xbox and Microsoft gaming be a, being a fairly large, a fairly large segment of the business. They want to keep growing the Game Pass business. Game Pass, which... I estimate, um, I think I saw a Morningstar thing that said they have about 25 million subscribers based on estimates. They don't disclose this, but that's an estimate. And Activision has 360 million monthly active users these days. So from what I understand, being a non-gamer these days, Game Pass is basically the Netflixification of video game titles. Think of video game discs like Blockbuster and Game Pass like Netflix. All the major publishers have, have, have been working towards this business model. And the whole idea here is video game titles and publishing is a very chunky business. It's like movies. Very chunky revenue and cash flow wise. Create a title, create some buzz about it, sell a ton of comp copies on launch and, and trickle out through the rest of the quarter. And then pretty slow stream of sales until that next big launch. The subscription model fixes this. And net-net, it's probably a great model for people who want to just pay, I don't know, what is it, like 30 bucks, 20 bucks? I'm, I don't really know. Yeah, there's different price tiers, I think, too. I had the one EA Sports, I think, or EA Electronic Arts. I one, I, I used it for like six months or so when I got a new computer. And it was pretty cool. It was like, I think like six seven bucks a month there was different tiers so for the cheapest one you could have access to their older games so games that have been released for a couple of years mm. uh, but for me you know casual gamer more than enough i was happy it was still really yeah, nice like graphics Chell Chell 19 is gonna be just fine for me i don't yeah. need Chell 24 yeah, and they had like the Star Wars franchises, so they had like, I didn't care whether it was the most recent one or not, and uh, you had different tiers, and then the most expensive tier, you had access to their new releases, uh, but that was, yeah, I think probably in the $30, $40 range, yeah. Got it, okay, so $30, $40, and then a game's what, like $80, $90 ish after tax, so... If, if I mean, if you're playing a lot and you want to play a bunch of different games, then it's probably not a bad deal. Regulators were rightfully worried about this because you can be pretty anti-competitive with this acquisition. Uh, Post-acquisition, if they wanted to, to own the publishing and the hardware side of the business and really like kind of wall garden all of it, then that's definitely a concern for regulators. You know, them being the, the hardware being the largest competitors with Nintendo and Sony with the, the PS whatever we are on, PS5, 
So in response, Microsoft signed agreements with Nintendo and Sony, promising them access to Call of Duty games for 10 years. I think there was some other big, you know, kind of compromises along the way. But this is the big piece, right? Call of Duty is the flagship franchise for Activision Blizzard. It It's been like the best-selling title uh, for console games for like a decade and a half now every year. Current CEO Bobby Kotick will be moving on uh, at the end of this year, at the end of this calendar year. So it's basically, all right, thanks, pal. Uh, You got a couple months left and then go off into the sunset. He's had quite the controversy in the HR department, right? Basically, right before the acquisition was announced. Like, lucky for this guy, a lot of heat got off of them, right? Immediately when this acquisition was announced, because there's a lot of HR heat on them. And then all of a sudden, everyone's just talking about this 69 nice billion dollar acquisition. Phil Knight, who's the current Microsoft gaming CEO, uh, will take over this portfolio uh, once, once Kotick steps down. Yeah, I think he's taken a lot of the blame in terms of the direction uh, for at least from the gamer's perspective, obviously as investors, you want to maximize profits, but I think it's a fine line with maximizing profits. And like I said before, not alienating your fan base. So I think, I think it's a good thing, um, overall. And do you know if Warren Buffett still, still owns it as an arbitrage play? As far as I know, I'll, I'll check his 13F, yeah. but he, he, he has owned the ARB for probably almost the entire existence much announced right yeah i think it rolled out in his next is following 13f um so i think he's been playing the arb the whole time it's funny right like you get this monster acquisition go through with you know some compromises it it seems like microsoft and apple kind of get a free pass from regulators yeah and then the other big techs not so much yeah, and for those wondering, like an arbitration play, you're essentially um, when there's an announcement for like a merger acquisition like that. Um, sometimes there's going to be uncertainty, a bit like you know, like we talked about whether in this case was regulatory uncertainty, but in some cases it could be financing, could be various reasons. Um, so you know, usually the company purchasing will agree to purchase at a certain price, but if the market thinks there's a not a hundred percent chance of this happening, then the company being acquired might be actually be trading below that acquiring price. And you're playing the arbitrage when you're betting that, you know, purchasing it at a lower price than the purchase price that it's being acquired in the long run will be beneficial for you because you think it actually will go through. Uh, here on the Berkshire 13F, yes, they still are holding that position as of their latest filing at around 15 million shares. But that in the in their 13F filing in the quarter was down 70%. So it looks like they took a bunch off the table a few months ago when it, it looked more and more like the deal was going to close that they, you know, they saw less upside in it and, and, and closed some of yeah, the position. Probably the British, uh, when the British regulators were not very f- yeah, in favor. And I think they're the ones that turned around, if I remember correctly. They're the ones that kind of ended yep. up approving it. That was the biggest sticking That's point. That's right. Yeah, exactly as Simone says. Like, I'm going to play the ARB. And I thought about it because I th- right out of the gate, I said that I think that this will eventually close. It seemed like it wouldn't for a while there. But basically, if I was to play it, I would say, I think the chances are it's going to close. I'm going to make a bunch of money when it does close because the acquisition takeout price is higher than the price that it's trading at on the open market. All right, let's talk about inflation. A little bit of macro. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. We're, we're, still, we're still in inflation world. Still in inflation world. It's funny, like what a week, you know, what a week of difference it makes because last week there was not much news. And then this week, all these different uh, news earnings, US CPI came out uh, late last IPOs. week. IPOs, and then you have Canada CPI that actually came in uh, just this morning. So I'll start with that one, although it came in after the U.S., but still. Um, so Canada CPI came in at lower than expected at 3.8%. That's a headline number year over year versus September. Econ- economists were predicting 3.9%. And according to Stats Canada, and I'll, I'll kind of say according to them because they calculate the CPI, prices declined 0.1% from August to September. 
September. So the headline prices, um, I say according to them, because I'm sure a lot of people will say like, well, I don't feel like prices have declined. Um, this is actually a decline, not disinflation, not a lower inflation rate. It's actually a negative uh, price increase, uh, very minor. But again, I think you know, hopefully it's heading in the right direction here. And most items actually decline on the month over month basis, including food, which declined with 0.1%. Um, the most significant decline was actually gasoline at 1.3%. And compared to last year, prices are still increasing at an elevated pace with the headline number, like I said, being 3.8%. And on a year over year basis, it's still pretty high. So food increased 5.9%, shelter 6%, energy as a whole, category was up 5.4% while gas was up 7.5%. And the increase in prices for durable goods is slowing down pretty significantly. And, you know, if people have been paying attention, and we certainly talked about this in on the podcast, if people have been listening to what companies and retailers have been saying in Q2, so several months ago now, I think in July that started coming out, this is not really a surprise. Retailers were starting to say we're seeing consumer spend shift from these durable goods, so things you keep for a long time, so whether it's household appliances, furniture, to more essentials. And I think this is starting to reflect it. So durable goods, they were up 0.4% on a yearly basis, but declined 0.6% versus August. New cars were 1.7% higher compared to last year. Uh, Stats Canada did say in large part because of more uh, inventory being available. Furniture was down 4.6% on a year over year and appliance down 2.3%. And non-durable goods were up 5.8% year over year, but down 0.3% month over month. And this is really the one I think people need to keep an eye on because durable, non-durable goods includes a wide variety of items, but it's basically, you know, a lot of the essentials actually fall into that category. So this is what is still impacting a lot of people. Um, So yeah, any comments on that before I move on to the US? And the last thing I'll say is that core CPI is actually trending down on as well so it was in april uh there's three measures so it was 5.6 4.3 and 4.2 and now they're 4.4 3.8 and 3.7 so definitely an improvement but still definitely much higher than the target from the bank of canada i haven't been following it as much but does does canada have um you've seen this u.s inflation reduction act right oh <laughs> It's just the dumbest name of, of a legislation I've ever heard. But yes, I've I've heard of it. I, I don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, I, I can get your I can get your vibe on it from the reaction. Have we have we put out any fluff pieces? No, <laughs> as, as we, I don't think. <laughs> no, I mean obviously the government has been spending on various programs um, in the U.S. are branding it as the Inflation Reduction Act, which is. I guess an oxymoron if I know my terms uh, well because uh, or it's really like it's a massive spending bill um, and their idea is that I guess um, it will help infrastructure and technology to the point that it will reduce inflation which I don't know it's a bit of a head scratcher but if you talk to anyone following macro a lot of push for drug prices to be reduced too because that's a a big line item for for consumers in the US compared to here. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, definitely a bit of a strange name for the bill. I think it's more, you know, political trying to spin things and, right. you know, so that people, yeah, I mean, we have an election cycle coming up in the U.S., so obviously all the parties are kind of gearing up for that. And I think, you know, you can even look at the term. Got to get Biden. Your branding on point, right? Yeah, like, well, Bidenomics, I think, is one of the things I'm, it's just, yeah, the U.S. <laughs> is something else. But anyways, oh, so... Man. Continuing to the U.S., uh, so U.S. CPI, it increased 3.7% year over year and 0.4% compared to August. Food inflation was at 3.7%, but what really caught my eye was that it was 
2.4% for food at home because they break it down and 6% away from home. So you're really seeing uh, an increase, especially when it comes to restaurants. Energy as a whole was down 0.5% uh, year over year, but up 1.5% month over month. Gasoline up uh, both on year over year and month over month, 3 and 2% respectively. And core CPI, again, this strips out the volatile food and gas and energy, I believe. Um, came in at 4.1%. Um, I always kind of laugh because, yes, they want to see it. You know, they want to remove the volatile elements. But at the end of the day, you know, energy and food is what, you know, they're essential for, you know, for everyone. You know, you need that. So it's kind of funny that they strip those out. But they do use it to core. And it's still... It's still higher than they would want at 4.1%. Um, used cars were down significantly, 8% year over year, 2.5% month over month. Not surprising. And same thing, vehicles that are new uh, were up 2.5% year over year, but 0.3% month over month. So you're really seeing a slowdown on the vehicle side, which is something in the US that's being impacted in Canada as well by higher interest rates. Because if most people do not buy cars, you know outright they you know they finance the cars and you're seeing the cost of financing go up so i wouldn't be surprised if the coming months um we'll see some not so great numbers from car manufacturers because uh price of cars are still increasing maybe a bit less rapidly but they're still increasing and the cost of financing is going way way up so something's got to give and that's something that, that that lag effect we're definitely starting to see it uh with that because those are purchases that are more price sensitive or sensitive to interest rates auto manufacturers they're in a bit of a weird spot right now i mean how are they still doing that uh up until what point were they doing that zero percent financing like that was yeah i think it was was common that was like 2020 2021 or even before that uh yeah they did for several years are very low yeah yeah like um Leasing a vehicle has cha- changed dramatically for for consumers, and and so, uh, man, I've never been uh, never been one to want to own automakers, and uh, <laughs> I don't know how you can get excited about. Yeah, many of I them. mean, I I would stay away from the big three like the plague. Um, and I'll just go over something quick that I had done in the notes here. So, you know, whatever people think about Elon and Tesla, they've been very aggressive in price cuts in the U.S. And I think they've also had some in Canada. But in the U.S., Tesla has cut the price of the Model 3 by 17% since the beginning of the year and 26% for the Model Y. Um, obviously, I'm sure that's a probably a double reaction so uh first byd which is the chinese electric or auto manufacturer i think they have some hybrid cars as well the one that's back i think by charlie and and warren i believe they have a stake in that um i think they're facing pressure from there but also i think they're also seeing that the consumer um can't afford as high prices in terms of what I just talked for high interest rates. So, and Tesla has much cheaper costs than the big three in terms of labor costs. Um, so I, I think, you know, depending what the outcome is with these uh, strikes that are happening in the US with the UAW, um, it could be a really difficult couple of years, if not beyond that for the big three, because they're going to have a hard time staying competitive. That's what I think. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but for that reason, I mean, there's not really a price where I'd be interested in buying them. There's just too much uncertainty and uh, just too much risk around them. Just looking here, I'm pulling up operating margins and putting it in the dock. They've they've seen some real pressure on operating margins down. Um, I'm putting it in here in the dock. The this is trailing, so every single point looks at the previous four quarters, and so it smooths it out, and you know keeps it smooth. Looking at quarterly data, peaked at around sixteen point eight percent operating margin for Tesla at the end of twenty twenty two. We've seen that drop to thirteen and a half percent, still way up um, from kind of the pre COVID days. They saw really nice operating margin expansion. Uh, kind of hitting operating leverage as a business, and they've been the most efficient automaker. There's no doubt. You got to give them credit. They, they've you know built these plants uh, in a way that 
is second to none in the industry. I'm trying to pair, compare that to like what's a GM operating margin. I'm going to look here. Yeah, GM's a good one. They've been probably the most consistently pro- profitable over the last decade. I remember looking at it not too long ago. Because Ford has been more all oh, over the, the place. Atlantis as well. Uh, a bit more all over the place. Yeah, so trailing 12 months operating margin for Tesla is 13.5%, which is more than double or around exactly double General Motors operating margins trailing 12 months at 6.6%. <laughs> that's a pretty big difference right there. And that's not even counting those higher contracts if they do ratify them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I think that just proves my point. I don't know why you'd want to, you know, it's one thing to own them when they have the union contracts signed and you know what to expect for the next three, four, five years, but um, you don't even know that and the margins are not that great. Plus the higher rates, the uncertain uh, economic environment. I, I just don't know. I think it's there's red flags going on for me when it comes to the big three. Yeah, yeah. they saw some huge spike in, in margins in 21. Uh, you're seeing that come off a little bit and normalize. But I mean, this is why people think, you know, you can't bucket Tesla with the other automakers. Look at the margin profile. Uh, it's entirely different, and, and and I think that that's a fair a fair comparison. I still don't want to own any automakers, but uh, that's just my opinion. <laughs> we get to move on to IPOs. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So there's been a bit of a pickup in IPOs. I did a breakdown eh, maybe a month ago on the S1 filing for Instacart. Their <laughs> their uh, corporations like Maple Bear or something strange, but. Uh, the operating name of the company is called Instacart, which many of you know, it's the grocery delivery application. They IPO'd in late September. A few days earlier was Arm Holdings, which we didn't really discuss, but I'm discussing it now. The semiconductor company hit a $60 billion uh, market cap uh, just after IPO. I think it's sitting at around 55-ish billion US today. This is a funny one because Arm Holdings, which is uh, you know, a semiconductor company was a public company just a few years back. And they were bought by SoftBank for $25 billion off the public markets. And SoftBank's bet paid off because they flipped it back on the markets for uh, about 50 to $60 billion IPO. Clavio, a software company, another big name debut on the, comp- on the public markets, that just hit a roughly $8 billion in market cap. So um, I'm not super familiar with the company, but it's like e-commerce automation. It's kind of like a Twilio uh, type business. It helps people automate customer communications for e-commerce. Now, we haven't talked about it yet. Birkenstock went public. Yeah, Uh, I know. I saw that. (laughs) The sandal company. Yeah, I have a pair. I love them. Yeah. You, lo- you love your Birkenstocks? Okay. I love yeah, my Just the one pair. Have you been a longtime Burks guy or is this no, your No, a couple pair? of years, but uh, my my dad okay. has been for a very long time. And it's just, um, I bought some fake ones before. It's just not the same. So I went yeah. there, paid the paid the hundred bucks or so and uh, yeah. no, really good quality. Really like them. Yeah. The way like, yeah, after like six months of wearing them, your foot just melds into them. Yeah, exactly. It's super. Anyone nice. else no one will steal your shoes. Pro- yeah, exactly. No one probably will ever anyone steal else. Yeah. Anyone else trying them would probably be like, "Oh my god, this hurts my feet." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, what's wrong with your feet? IPO'd at seven and a half billion in market cap. It's fallen a little since. Fairly impressive business. I was actually kind of surprised. They're selling a lot of sandals. One point four billion euros in sales in the trailing twelve months. That grew thirty percent year over year. Very solid 63% gross margins. I mean, I'm not surprised. They're selling uh, $120 sandals. The CEO went on CNBC on the IPO day. Did you see this guy? No, I didn't. He was wearing a button-up shirt. And bro, he had like the top five buttons undone. Like I'm pretty sure he had like one button in the field of the camera. Uh, absolute power move. This guy was making me laugh. Uh, so unintentionally funny with his with his accent there. But um, yeah, this guy just was killing me, bro. He, his chest hair oh, just, yeah. fly, just yeah, flying out. <laughs> yeah, big beard, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, big yeah. beard. Uh, this guy's... 
This guy's awesome. I wish they showed if he had like sandals on or not. He yeah, must yeah, have. seriously. With that look, he, yeah, for sure. If yeah, he wasn't wearing not sure. Yeah, just Google Birkenstock CEO CNBC interview. Looking in images, you'll find it. You'll see what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, if he wasn't wearing Birkenstocks uh, there during IPO day, I want to short the stock for sure. Yeah, you know, that's a, you got to be doing that. So many IPOs have fallen in price since listing day. And here's my hot take. This is what companies should be shooting for. In 21, in 2020, when there was the onslaught of IPOs, it was just assumed you IPO and your stock goes up like 30% the next day with a lot of these hot unicorn tech listings. For some reason, the vanity metric has been how much the stock jumps on public trading day. That's not what you want. (laughs) You should want to sell the shares at a nice little premium, raise some capital, and then long-term execution, let the chips fall where they should be. Let the market value the business as you compound value long-term. If shares jump big on trading day, Uh, You're either in the market mania of 2021 or the shares were likely underpriced and your investment bank left left money on the table. That's my opinion. I don't know why that has become uh, like a contrarian take. It it makes no sense uh, to me. I've always been of that idea. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, you want the shares almost be flat once they're listed because you you maximize earnings. You don't like screw anyone either at the same time. Uh, but yeah, no, IPOs have been, for the most part, I tried to give it at least a year um, because sometimes, yeah, there's just a lot of hype around it. Um, I mean, some of the companies we've seen, it's not like Arm and, um, and what's the other one um, you would talked about Clavio. Instacart, Arm, oh, Arm, Pre- Instacart, yeah. Arm and Instacart. It's not like they've performed all that well either. And uh, in terms of SoftBank, I mean, they did okay, but they only did, I think they sold what, like 10%. They only, and it, they basically said they're using the proceeds like as cash for them. Like it's not, they're not reinvesting in the business or anything, which is, you know, which makes sense when you made some really good bets like WeWork, for example. Um, you know, you need a little <laughs> extra cash. And I mean, SoftBank has made some pretty poor bets in the last like five years. Um, it used to be like, I feel like he had this aura around him. Yeah, Massa was like... yeah. Japanese Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Now, like, what stupid bet is it going to make next is almost that. But, um, yeah, I think that's just a good idea just to see how also management reacts to being publicly traded because you can, you know, there's countless CEOs over time that have been CEOs of private and public companies, sometimes, oftentimes the same company. And it's a very different beast. And you just want to see how the company performs, but also how management performs once they are publicly listed. Yeah, like they start catering to short-term stuff maybe or, um, you know, listen to a few earnings calls for the first time, um, get, get a kind of look through in the business on a longer term than just what's in the S1. I, I think that that's pretty fair. You know, y- you don't have to rush into anything, right? There's no, no called strikes in investing. So uh, I think that that's probably a sage point. All right, let's move on. You got, uh, we got still a couple more things here. So let's uh, keep it going. Yeah, yeah. So uh, an acquisition, a Canadian acquisition. Uh, so Spin Master Corp uh, will will announce that it will be acquiring Melissa and Doug. So I'm sure for those of like our listeners that are especially younger parents uh, that have younger kids, I mean, like myself, uh, they might be familiar with this. But in case people are not, I'll just go over, give a little bit of background what Spin Master Corp is and Melissa and Doug. So Spin Master Corp is a Canadian company. Awesome ticker, by the way toy.to so they are a toy maker and they said they will be acquiring Melissa and Doug who is also a toy maker so if you're not familiar with them they do have uh, some pretty familiar brands um, of their own so Paw Patrol I think most people are probably or at least have seen it on Netflix for example they have a lot of shows Uh, Bakugan, Hatchimals, Kinetic Sand, Air Hogs so these are um, their own property but 
toy companies also tend well they will usually have licensing agreements in place as well uh, whichever one you're looking at uh, like obviously for example if you're a toy company and you have like the disney licensing agreement that's a pretty good deal because obviously disney comes out with tons of movies their intellectual property and so on so it's it's great for toys now, one of their licensing agreement they currently have in place is uh, the higher profile one is the one with Warner Brothers consumer products for DC superheroes such as Batman. So the agreement was renewed in 2022 and runs through 2026. And like I said, for toy companies, this is actually quite important. Now, back to the acquisition, Spin Master Corp is acquiring Melissa and Doug for 950 million USD. 450 million in cash and 500 million that will be financed uh, by debt. The transaction may go up to 1.1 billion if they achieve certain financial metrics in 2024-25. And Melissa and Doug is a high-quality, open-ended, creative, and developmental, sustainable wooden toys. Um, I'm familiar with it because obviously I have a young daughter. I've we have a couple of their toys. They're very nice toys, and they are really aimed at early childhood kids. So. Um, you know, I actually wanted to learn a bit more about uh, all their suite, uh, suite of toys, and the toys tend to go from newborn to eight years old, so definitely for younger children, and they really have interesting uh, toys, especially if you're trying to get them to play and learn, be entertained, but without being glued to a screen, which I think is probably what most parents want uh, without you know having to put the TV on and the acquisition will allow Spin Master Corp to expand even more in the childhood toys because the especially the early childhood toys they do have some offerings but not very extensive and I think this acquisition uh, will help them make some progress there and Melissa and Doug actually had 489 million in revenue in 2022 so um, I mean from my standpoint, I don't know the two companies overly well. Obviously, Melissa and Doug, I wouldn't know as well, but uh, Spin Master Corp, it does make sense. Obviously, it's a toy company buying another toy company. I think it, it does look like it fits well It's into its portfolio. And these are toys that also kind of stand the test of time as well. So um, I have to say it probably makes a whole lot of sense. We'll probably have a better idea a couple years down the line if it, it really does, but um, not too much more to say there. Any, any comments on that? I was just doing some digging into Melissa and Doug. I was like, who, who, yeah. <laughs> who is Melissa and Doug? Yeah, that, yeah, they're the founders, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they are, you know, a, a, a what looks like a happy married couple that went into to business together, left their jobs, started this toy company. It looks like it's sold to private equity uh, years ago, um, but they grew it from the ground up in, in Connecticut there. Uh, sold the private equity and then now uh, bought by Spin Master, as you discussed. So, hey, Melissa, Doug, we love a good entrepreneurial story. Congrats on uh, making a boatload of money again, probably. <laughs> I'm sure they, yeah, I'm sure they, they retained some. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. I, I would assume so. Um, I mean, I am I think they're probably well off and their kids are well off now uh, for and a couple generations toys. at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> great toys. So they're wooden toys. I love wooden, wooden toys. Wooden toys mostly. I think they have some different ones, but uh, and uh, the ones we have are definitely like really good quality too. Um, yeah. I love the sound uh wooden toys make when they clack together you know what i mean yeah, yeah. very satisfying <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah like those blocks very cool all right let's move on to canon's advancements uh, advancements in air quotes tbd still uh in challenging asml of course simon i buy yeah. asml for their monopoly I in ultraviolet, yeah. extreme ultraviolet lithography, you literally like two days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally like two days before they break, uh, you know, they, they got news of it. They're like, okay, Braden bought ASML. Issue the press release. Japanese company Canon, this is the the camera maker, uh, the camera maker, uh, Nikon's another Japanese camera maker. They've been involved with lithography and, and, and chip makers for a long time. They kind of lost the war. Uh, they lost the war. ASML really dominated with the advancements of uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography. 
Japanese company Canon says they can now rival ASML with nano imprint lithography. Now, both stocks really have not moved on this news. And you may be thinking, how? This is, seems like a big deal. And here's why. The market, in my view, and myself, and I'll, maybe I'll speak for you, is basically saying, okay, prove it. Because we have heard this song and dance before. There is a reason no one has been able to touch ASML's extreme ultraviolet lithography. It is an extraordinary complex, you know, at the, at the greatest lengths of human achievement with science and innovation, requires tens and tens of billions of dollars in, in R&D and deep, deep complex supply chain partnerships. And according to my just quick Googling research, Japanese lithography companies have been developing nano imprint lithography and had it announced as a, as a breakthrough in 2004, so 20 years ago, uh, and, and ASML's dominance has reigned supreme. So I, I say this as a, I'm not going to, you know, in my hubris say, ah, oh, ASML is the best business ever. You can't touch them. This is a, this is a prove it and, and wait and monitor it. It's, it's no reason to, to freak out. Uh, but I, but also, no reason to to be complacent here. So this is just something that I'm going to continue to monitor. As all positions have extreme dominant market share positions, change is bad. <laughs> Monopolies hate change. And so uh, you're just monitoring for change here, but you're not freaking out. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a lot of things involved. Like it's extremely complex. And if you take a company like TSMC, so Taiwan Semiconductors, is, you know, they have the expertise, but their expertise is used on working with certain tools. So I think that's one thing that Canon will be facing is whether, you know, the semiconductors, so the ones that actually produce the chip, like the TSMC, will be willing to invest in new tools that they, you know, I'm sure they're similar, but I know, like, you know, having read enough that I know they'll be different as well. Um, so are they willing to invest with, you know, invest time and resources, training employees on these new tools? And the other thing it'll be interesting is the failure rate. So for people that are not familiar with failure rate when it comes to semiconductors is that, you know, when semiconductors are produced, like they're never they're never perfect. So they're never perfect. But in, you know, when you have a very low failure rate, it means that, you know, the imperfections for most of the vast majority of the chips are so small that it does not affect the performance. Mm -hmm. But when you have a higher failure rate or the failure rate is actually that the chips cannot be you know, sold essentially because they're not working properly. And, you know, that's what you're seeing. So if ever, if ever you're reading on development and these type of a technology, you know, if you see a, you know, a hype around the company, but they have a 30% failure rate, that's not very good. If you get into the high 80s, 90s, um, that's when it starts being more and more attractive uh, because at the end of the day, they can't sell chips that don't work as they should. Yeah. And the designers, the foundry, like TSMC in this case, and the lithography equipment, uh, equipment broadly, whether it's, you know, um, applied materials, ASML, the long list of people that are in this ecosystem. These relationships are very, uh, run very deep. And the CapEx plans cannot be flipped on a dime um, as well. So, Again, not, this is not saying that disruption is never going to happen and can't happen. It's just that there's a reason that these are wide moat businesses, uh, from my view, and, and for all the reasons that we just mentioned. All right, um, we're kicking off earnings season, and yeah. you're going to start here. Uh, so over the next few weeks, tune in. Uh, it's kicking off. I know my team's gearing up pretty heavy there with, with the data updates for the, the stratosphere KPIs and segments and stuff. Uh, which I see you, you have a, a nice, beautiful graph here on deposits. Let's kick it off with, uh, I guess, the world's largest bank by market. I was going to say the smallest bank or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, the world's no, smallest no, bank. Yeah, the the world's. Uh, yeah, I think I think it is up there, right? I haven't looked at the. I GCIP think it's by, largest by market cap. 
Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. So anyways, yeah. So you have, um, you know, people may have guessed it. So it's uh, JP Morgan Chase. So it is, yeah, in terms of GSIP, so globally systematically important banks, uh, the ones that are considered too big to fail, um, JP Morgan Chase is at the top of the list. So there's five levels. Um, the top level is there's none there. And the fourth level, which is the, you know, the biggest one is JP Morgan Chase uh, solo there. And then you have three, two, and then the lowest level, number one, which are Canadian banks, uh, RBC and TD kind of fit in there. Now, JP Morgan, JP Morgan wanted- is almost double the largest, the second largest bank by market cap. <laughs> it's, it's almost crazy, double yeah. Bank of yeah. America. Yeah. Wow. So okay. That's why when Jamie Dimon talks, people listen. Um, I don't always agree with what he says, and I think people sometimes take what he says like gospel, but, um, I mean, he's uh, one, I would say, probably one of the more influential people in the financial markets in the world, I would say. I think that's a, that's a safe bet. Uh, now, deposits were down 4% year over year, and I wanted to have a look at that because we're, you know, we talked about deposits uh, fleeing to larger banks uh, in the wake of the SVB and regional bank uh, crisis in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, I was kind of surprised to see that 4% down year over year. But then you factor in the fact that maybe, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. People are spending more. Interest rates are higher. People have less, you know, savings. Uh, things add up. And maybe that kind of counterbalanced the fact that I'm sure they got increased uh, deposits following the regional bank crisis. Uh, but it's been relatively stable. If you look at the deposits for JP Morgan, there hasn't been that much change over time it's been kind of hovering around the same type of levels what quarter would the uh, svb and signature bank collapse have been i think i would have been q1 of this year uh yeah q1 of this year because it happened in march i would say you would have seen it in q2 probably a bit more yeah right okay yeah uh, mix of Q1 and Q2 when it, those came out. Uh, commercial banking deposits were also down 7%. So that's something just to keep an eye on. I think more as the, you know, JP Morgan being such a massive bank and it's one of those, you know, national banks in the US, um, that's more of an indication maybe where things are going a little bit for uh, for businesses. Asset of under management for their wealth management business were up 22% to 3.2 trillion. Although I think you can attribute that probably in large part because of the market performance year over year. So I think you probably take this with a grain of salt. Loan loss provisions were down 52% uh, versus Q2. So on a sequential basis at 1.3 billion. And that's interesting because we see the difference now between JP Morgan and the Canadian banks. Because Canadian banks have been steadily ramping up those loan loss provisions. And the fact that they brought those down by 52%, who knows what will happen the next quarter. But I thought that was an interesting kind of tidbit to, to look at. Net income was up 35% to $13 billion, but $1.1 billion was because of the First Republic acquisition. For those who don't remember, First Republic was one of these regional banks that failed following the SVB collapse. And JP Morgan, with some government assurance, uh, basically capping their losses. <laughs> they bought the assets, um, ended up buying the assets for um, for First Republic. So, um, you know, I think you just have to keep that in mind because obviously, you know, there's 1.1 billion of that 13. is It's not insignificant. And the interest rate margin stayed pretty steady over um, covering right around 2% for the past year after climbing from 1.8%. So hasn't moved much, uh, stayed steady. So probably tells you that you know, with even interest rates rising even more, um, it feels like they probably had to increase a little bit what they're paying their depositors because if they had kept the depositor interest kind of flat, overall for the bank, uh, you would have seen this interest margin kind of creep up in even more. So I think you can, when you look at bank earnings, you can look at these different metrics. And this is obviously just an overview, but it kind of gives you an idea like, okay, like if these things are happening, then it's probably meaning this. So I just find it a bit fascinating to look at banks for those reasons. But overall, I think 
pretty interesting, like pretty good, I mean, uh, in terms of earnings for JP Morgan. It'll be interesting what other big U.S. banks uh, come out in the upcoming quarters. And, you know, the next year, I think it'll be interesting what happens with, uh, you know, a lot of macro uncertainty on the economic front, whether we enter a recession or not, the U.S. as well. So it'll be interesting to see how those big banks fare. You know, I'm not a huge bank guy, but this is the best bank run by the best banker. That's that's how I think of uh, J.P. Morgan and how, who I'm now officially calling J.P. Diamond. The, <laughs> the, the dynamics of U.S. banks, how fragmented it is, the, the collapse that we just talked about with First Republic, SVB, people kind of worried about realizing, hey, you know, my money cannot be 100% safe um, unless it's with one of these GSIP banks, even though eh, maybe they bail you out. Uh, but uh, that's besides the point. This is one of those things where coming out of the GFC, now through what happened in Q1, you know, the, the biggest and the strongest get bigger and stronger. It's like how I view JP Morgan moving forward. Which, I mean... I don't think personally that's a good thing, but um, some people may argue it's good for financial stability, but it, it does also reduce competition. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the U.S. system was always seen as one that was very competitive because of all the regional banks and regional yeah. banks being able to oftentimes cater to more local businesses because they had that connection. They had that, uh, you know, that uh I don't know what how what the term is, but they that the small town they, feel, <laughs> small town feel exactly that trust established, and that that won't be present with big banks. So I think no. it'll be interesting how it develops in the next like five to ten years. Um, my bet is still that we we'll see a significant reduction in the amount of banks in the U.S. For better or for worse, the my hot take was that banking in the U.S. starts to look more like banking in Canada on a long horizon. Uh, you know, few large oligopolistic players who have terrible service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, look forward to that down south. All right. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We are here Mondays and Thursdays. News on Thursdays. Everything else on Monday. We have... Um, so... This this next coming Monday, we have a good episode coming out. We're going to talk about selling um, frameworks. We're going to give an update on what do we got? Uh, I'm going to explain going to how the like the the Fed yeah. actually works. So uh, yeah, that that'll be fun. And then uh, a little bit of a U.S. cannabis update. Yeah, that's right. And then the following Monday, we're going to do a breakdown of. All the stocks we each own. So it, it might might take a little bit longer than normal, um, but we're going to go through everything. We're not going to go through a deep dive on every single stock because, you know, that would take a, a day. But we are going to talk about one driver that we think that is really important for the stock to always track, to always think about whether it's, you know, quantifiable or, you know, just like a you know, competitive advantage to, to track we're going to go through each single one in our portfolio that we own, uh, every single one, and go through one by one. So you're not going to want to miss that uh, on the following Monday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.